Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the Research Evangelist, and welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast. I'm coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And you know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news, and I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous. And of course, the, the, the not famous part is the irony because they're all well known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve. But my, my next door neighbor might not recognize their name. So, uh, but I really think they are brilliant and committed to their work. So I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work they're doing. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope some positive things come from sharing their stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited uh, to have on my show, uh, Dr. Melinda Aldrich. And Dr. Aldrich is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, the Division of Genetic Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She holds additional appointments in the, uh, the Department of Thoracic Surgery and in the, the Department of Biomedical Informatics. Her research is focused on understanding why there are differences in lung cancer risk and survival among different racial and ethnic populations. So uh, Melinda received her M uh, master's in public health and her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and did a fellowship in genetic and molecular epidemiology at the University of California in San Francisco. And of course, I had the pleasure of meeting Melinda uh, in Nashville uh, a few weeks ago when we were building white ribbons uh, for the lung cancer community. So uh, that's our connection. And I'm just super excited to have you on the show. So uh, Melinda, thank you very much and welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. I Thank you for having me, Gabe. Awesome. And we did have fun in Nashville. That was quite an experience, wasn't it? Oh, it was amazing. I <laughs> loved it. It was great community of folks. Just um, I honestly, I thought I was going to be there for an hour I was there for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> and it was hot too. It was really hot that day. Thankfully, we had the cover, so we were in the shade, but yep. it was a hot day. But we had, for folks listening, we had some some great people from Vanderbilt and from Sarah Cannon, uh, and a bunch of us flew in from from all over the place uh, to to be part of it. And we made, how many ribbons? I don't remember how many. We made quite a few though. It was it was a really, a it was lot. a great, it was a great yeah. day. So, um, so th thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, could, let's just start. I'd love you to, to, to tell us about yourself. I'm not even sure if I know where you're from. So give us a little, a little, uh, a background on, on yourself. Sure. Uh, where you're from is always kind of a mixed, how do you answer that? Um, <laughs> but, uh, I grew up in New Mexico in Los Alamos, sort of an unusual town to grow up in. Um, and, uh, from there, um, Spent most of my adult life, though, in, in California and in the Bay Area, where I did my um, both undergraduate and graduate training and, and postdoc, and uh, subsequently moved here to Nashville for a faculty position. Yes. Yeah, so how long have you been in Nashville? Gosh, it's been over 10 years. Uh, time flies. <laughs> And and how did you how did you end up there? Like from from being out in California, what what drew you to um, the work of Vanderbilt? Well, I um, really never expected to live in the South, um, but uh, I happened to be at a conference and saw a job posting. They were looking for people interested in doing lung cancer research, and that was what I was working on. And so I applied, and one thing led to another, and it just felt like the right fit. And I'm a firm believer in sort of taking yourself out of your comfort zone, and um, so 
it was, you know, definitely a big move from San Francisco, but I've got an incredible network of family, of friends and, and colleagues here now that um, never would have happened otherwise. So it's been a really amazing experience. Yeah, it's really cool. Sometimes I get so Boston centric because I've lived in Boston for so long, <laughs> but I just, when I go to places like Nashville, I just, I just meet amazing people like, like you and Eric Rogan, some others that, that I met. It's, it's just amazing how much good work is happening all over the country. So it's not just that Boston is sort of this kind of, biotech mecca place where there's a lot of university stuff. There's a lot of really good stuff happening um, down there. And, and I had actually Lee Schwartzberg on my show, who is with the, uh, with the medical director at the West Clinic. And he's, you know, he's from New York. And so kind of similar journey where he just brought that talent down to, to Tennessee. And it, you know, it's just, you guys are doing just really good stuff. So were you always uh, interested when you were younger in, uh, research and science or when did that kind of bug yeah. strike you? Um, well, as I mentioned, I grew up in Los Alamos and Los Alamos National Lab is there. So my father worked for the National Lab. And so I grew up in a family where science was valued and, you know, sort of the, the atmosphere of research and science um, was definitely a part of my growing up and just in fact, the entire town itself. Um, so yeah, I've always loved that, um, co continuous learning, if you will. Um, that just, you know, the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> and so I've just always loved that. Um, and the, the puzzles of biology and, and things like that. So, um, yeah. And I first, uh, got interested in doing lung cancer work back when I was in graduate school, and at the time, gosh, I won't say, I don't know, probably about 20 years ago, a while ago, <laughs> really very few people were doing lung cancer research. And I often pick some, sometimes the, the harder problems that maybe people aren't paying attention to. And, uh, you know, my, the graduate professor I was working for, they needed somebody to help them on some data they'd been collecting and um Hispanics and in African-Americans or, or black populations. And it just sounded really interesting. And it's taken me down the rest of my career. Um, what work started during my, my PhD program. That's so cool. I, and you're not the first one that I've had on my show that's talked about sort of like 20 years ago kind of time frame that it wasn't the popular thing to go into lung cancer research because it was a very different time. And that was, and that was about the time that I, had my experience with lung cancer in 1999. So um, I, I know exactly what that time that time period was like and how, man, it was like the, the things were grim in terms of, you know, if you, if you were struck with lung cancer. So, but I'm so yeah. psyched that people like you that jumped in and many others that, you know, because to see that where we're at today is quite remarkable, right? So, uh, and yeah. I was going to ask you about that. And I was, I was really curious to know, like, why lung cancer? Like, if there was a, like a personal connection or not, but it sounds like it was more of a, a professional curiosity or uh, direction that you wanted okay. to go. Yeah, it was really more professional. Um, I didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. Very popular at the time was breast cancer research and that type of thing. So I was really looking for something different. And um, I do have a personal connection with, with lung cancer. My aunt died of lung cancer. And one of the stories as well, where she was a never smoker and just sort of the mystery around all of those diagnoses for, for folks that 
get diagnosed with lung cancer and having never smoked themselves. So, um, but that happened many later, many years later after I had already been working with um, in lung cancer research. So, yeah, it's interesting. I I spoke with someone recently at the Lung Ambition Alliance, and they were I'd read, I'd read some of the research that they had published on sort of what professionals think of lung cancer and how they were asked a question like, is lung cancer different than other cancers? And because most people who get it are smokers. And, and it was like 60 some percent said, yes, it should be thought of differently. And I'm like, it shouldn't be thought of differently, right? Because I never smoked. So it shouldn't be looked at. But it's, it just kind of struck me that there's still a lot of people who think that it it's different because it's a smoker's disease, right? Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think that's a really good question to talk about. Um, I guess I, I have, I waffle between thinking about it as the same versus also different. Um, there's so much stigma around lung cancer that I think just isn't there for many of the other cancers. Um, I think the other challenge is it's really a, the eligibility criteria, for example, for screening is based on behavior. There is no other cancer, at least among the major cancers, where we screen people based on their behavior. So it's all usually age in terms of eligibility. So I think that in and of itself, so it's age plus your smoking behaviors that make you eligible for screening. And I think that in and of itself makes lung cancer very different. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's such, it's new and it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> I hear you. I totally hear you. Well, let's jump into, into, into some of the work that you're doing um, at Vanderbilt. And I'd like you to tell us about the, uh, it's the TREAT Lung Cancer Program, T-R-E-A-T in caps, because it's yeah. an acronym for Thoracic Disease Research, Epidemiology, Assessment, and Treatment. And it looks like there's a really cool team of of folks like you and others. And I'd love to hear you tell us a little bit about, about that program. Yeah, so that's a team that I co-lead um, with a couple other folks at, at Vanderbilt. And all of us are focused on lung cancer. Um, and so, you know, we really come together around a common um, drive and interest in addressing lung cancer, but really in a multidisciplinary framework. Um, that's what I really love about the group. We are a group of um, faculty, staff, and, and trainees, postdocs, and, and uh, students, both graduate and undergraduate, um, that uh, have very different expertise. So we have clinicians, a thoracic surgeon, clinical epidemiologists, um, biostatisticians, radiologists um, who help lead the lung cancer screening program, Dr. Kim Sandler. Um, uh, biostat colleague, Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Bloom, my clinical folks, um, Dr. Eric Grogan, and then epidemiologist, Dr. Stephen Deppin. Um, we're in, we have a postdoc who joined us recently. She's a health behaviorist because I really believe we have to think about that when we think about lung cancer screening. Um, I have uh, undergraduates that are interested in um, some sort of a social determinants of health perspective um, and what some of the risk factors are that might lead to increased risks for lung cancer. Um, so I just believe that science really, in order to tackle problems, we need to do that from a multidisciplinary framework. We can't operate within our own little silos 
Um, and I do a lot of genetic epidemiology as well. So I have human genetics um, trainees that work with me as well. Um, so anyway, and that just, I, I love it. It's, um, it's, it's just a fun way to approach science. So, and, and I think that's what we need to, to solve problems. Yeah, that's another common theme that I hear from guests on my show is this this uh, this notion of collaboration and mentorship and just just sort of working together because you know I've always felt like the more people trying to solve a problem is better you know because we all have our different <laughs> perspectives right and our different expertise right so yeah I agree so, yeah yes, totally so, agree yeah so tell us about your expertise. So I um, am an epidemiologist by training, so cancer epidemiology, and um, with a focus on genetic epidemiology, so trying to understand both genetic and non-genetic factors that might lead to different health outcomes. So whether that's increasing risk or um, influencing survival, um, so really looking at both genetics and environmental or social cultural factors that might influence outcomes. Um, and really my work spans everything, like it said, from trying to understand um, disparities in risk and what might drive. So we know people smoke, but that doesn't mean that you might get lung cancer, right? That's not a definitive. Um, so what is it that's, we believe it's probably your genetics, your genes combined with um, some environmental or sociocultural factors that combine the interplay of those things that can lead to risk. And we also look at survival um, and, you know, what things might impact your outcomes. We're doing some work um, with colleagues at UCSF looking at immunotherapies and can we identify using genetics, who's at higher risk for adverse outcomes if you're on immunotherapies. Um, I do a lot of work recently. We've been involved in lung cancer screening um, and trying to assess whether what are the appropriate guidelines for screening. Uh, we recently published some work showing that African-Americans are being excluded from those guidelines. Um, African-Americans tend to smoke fewer cigarettes per day than whites. Uh, so why is it that they have such an increased risk given that, that lower smoking amount? So, but we showed that that has an impact on their eligibility for screening. And as a result, the USPSTF changed their guidelines in part informed by our work. So. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Cause I read that, that your, your research was used in, in the, the, changing of some of those key guidelines from the U.S. Presenter Services Task Force. Um, I, I am, I, I'm really struck by, you know, my understanding of the changes of the guidelines, and it was meant, from what I read, it's meant to, to try to help underserved populations, but does it really do that, right? Because it feels like there's so many barriers to, for, for people getting access to, to screening. And so where are we at with that? Are we making any progress? Yeah, I mean, you really bring up a really good point. Um, there are numerous barriers, um, you know, and just the eligibility is one um, among many. Um, you know, there's challenges with 
access, you know, here in the South, there are the highest, the largest frequency or largest uh, number of people that are eligible, but there are not sufficient numbers of screening centers. Um, there are barriers with, um, you know, insurance, um, not, we don't have coverage that we need to in terms of people being able to get the care that they need and in terms of eligibility for, for screening under those insurance options. Um, there's all kinds of barriers with um, mistrust and of the healthcare system. Um, there's just, people aren't aware of screening, both providers and patients. So yeah, the, a number of barriers across the board. Are there any differences you think in your experience being now living in Nashville for a while between what you see in, in a place like Nashville or Memphis versus what you might see in Boston or New York? Is there any, are there any differences or are the, are the barriers and challenges the same? Um, that's a great question. Um, are there regional barriers? Um, I think it's more about access. You know, the, the distance you might be able to drive to get screened. Um, I believe this part of the country has the, the longer distances. Um, so that is one example. Um, that's a great question. I, I have to think about that one a little bit. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah. No, I mean, like I said, I, I, sometimes I get so Boston-centric because I live here. But I know in talking to some of the clinicians that I've talked to in Boston, you know, barriers might, it might not even be distance. It might just be from, you know, Roxbury or Dorchester to, to Boston. Like, why aren't people getting access to, you know, Dana-Farber, for example, you know? And so it's not necessarily just geographic. But I, but I, being from Minnesota, I often think about the people who, who often are treated in a community setting or live in a community, in a rural area. Yeah. And, and, and are there, ways that we can help people who, 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 who do live in those rural areas to get access to a place like I got treated at Mass General, which is, yeah. you know, so it's a, it's a work or, or at, at Vanderbilt, you know, yeah. so. And part uh, of the challenge as well, as well is that in general, on average, the, the folks that smoke tend to be lower um, socioeconomic status. And so there's a challenge there that if we do screen folks um, that are those smokers that or people that smoke, that there are challenges with getting the treatment that are needed if we find something on a scan that needs further follow-up. Yeah. So there's some hesitancy, you know, why get screened if I'm not going to be able to afford the downstream treatment? So um, but those are the populations we need to reach. Those are so. that's terrible. It, it is just, awful. It, it's just terrible. It just but it bothers me so much because it's. I, I mean, I think some of the barriers are self-inflicted in a way that you know some people that might that smoke may not want to know even like exactly. oh, I don't I don't want to go find out. I, I know I, I don't want to. I feel like I brought it upon myself. You shouldn't yeah. feel like you brought it upon yourself because the the, the I don't want to swear, but those tobacco companies have it's been proven that they with a $200 billion settlement that they were at fault for yeah. tricking people into smoking. And so yeah. even if you did smoke, you, you still, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. You yeah. know, We need to remove that stigma. It's really unfortunate. I agree. Um, so 
you know, and hope maybe with policy change, we can begin to, you know, and if we allow coverage that then we begin to remove some of these, the stigma that exists. Um, yeah, it's all tied up in this behavior that's tied in with screening rather than just age. Yeah. Do you do you, as a, as a, as a professional, do you feel the stigma about your work? Cause I've heard that from some clinicians who, who said that they actually kind of feel like they are part of, cause they're so connected to the lung cancer community. They kind of feel it as well because of the fact that they're in a space with us. I know, it's just something I was curious, just curious yeah. about. Not so much. I don't have a huge number of interactions with patients, so not so much. Most of my work is focused on disparities and diversity, equity, inclusion type of work. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of the space that I hear a lot about um, since my work is focused. Most of my work is focused in um, African-Americans or, or, or Blacks. So. Awesome. Well, that's perfect segue because I... I read that um, you're a senior, you're a co-senior author of Addressing Disparities in Lung Cancer Screening Eligibility and Healthcare Access, an official American Thoracic Society statement published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Yeah. It's a mouthful, but I love, now I really want to hear you tell us about that and tell us, tell us why um, you're passionate about that. Yeah, so that was a culmination of a project that uh, we started. It was led, uh, co-led with uh, Dr. Patricia Rivera and Dr. Louise Henderson, both at UNC. And so I had approached uh, Dr. Rivera a number of years ago and said, hey, I, this, I think we could put together a project in this space. And um, she was very supportive. And when we put, put together an application to the American Thrust Society and they agreed that it was a worthwhile project. And so we held a workshop and brought together leaders from around the country that had various expertise um, and could provide insight as to how we might begin to address some of these barriers. And, uh, and as a result, then we published um, that manuscript. And I just, yeah, I feel very passionate about addressing um, disparities and diversity. You know, I think. In some ways, that might be as a result of growing up in New Mexico and being around, you know, um, Hispanic populations. I'm married to a Hispanic. Um, I am a part of the the gay community, um, uh, so I very much believe in diversity and just um, uh, having equity. So, just part of my everyday work, really. That's awesome. We're so lucky to have people like you because that's I I'm 100 percent in agreement with you. And I and I I see that perspective and I I feel like I'm I am like the a perfect example of white privilege, you know, that, you know, my wife's a nurse at Mass General. We have insurance at Mass through her work and my primary care. Everything is MGH. And I like I live just outside of Boston. So I'm like and I see it, though. I see the disparities and it, it it's it's something that I've been really getting myself involved with and trying to see if I can help, you know, get involved. So a lot of the people that I'm ending up talking with on my show believe in the same things that I believe in. Right. And it's because it started for me as a patient when I finished my, after my lobectomy and all that terribleness, I remember thinking I got to do something to make a difference. And being from Minnesota, I was like, well, maybe I can like talk about how everybody deserves access to the same thing I had access to. Right? Because people don't have access to what I had 
access to. Yes. And that stinks. Yes. <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, I just feel like it's terrible. So, um, so appreciate all the work that you, that you do is really, it's really important work. And I, and I really do appreciate that. I, I'd like to ask you now about the white ribbon project, because um, of course that's where we met, but I always like to ask people, what did you think about when you first heard about the white ribbon project and, and, and now having experience actually getting together and put your, getting your hands dirty and, and helping build ribbons with love to be delivered with love. What, what's your, can, tell us your thoughts about that. Yeah, um, I'd heard of the White Ribbon Project from my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Christine Lovely, and I know that Dr. Pierre Massion was also supportive, um, but I had never really engaged with it, and and then I had heard that um, Christine was organizing this event just that just happened where we met, and I wanted to be a support for her, and um, and I've always been involved in, well, before I started my career, when I wasn't quite so busy, uh, I would do a lot of um, sort of community work, uh, mostly with the gay community, but I really believe in um, organizing and see the power of sort of grassroots movements. And um, so because of that, and just also trying to, because I believe in bringing awareness about lung cancer, um, decided to join um, that Saturday, and it was phenomenal. I absolutely loved it. I, you know, just everybody coming together and having a good time and meeting um, survivors, you know, people like yourself. I, I just entered, I get energized from it. I, it's absolutely something I love. So, and it's really nice to put the the person side, if you will, to um, the the numbers work that I do. I sit in front of computers all day long. So it's nice to see that sort of personal connection with the White Ribbon Project. Yeah. I, what's interesting is, you know, I'm part, as you know, I'm part of a small group that that meets on a regular basis um, just to strategize and, and talk about building coalitions and awareness. And we did, we think at the very, especially at the very beginning, we, we talked a lot about how we wanted to sort of pattern what we do after the, the sort of the AIDS movement from many years ago and the breast cancer movement from, from many years ago and, and take away some of the things that were, that, that they're so successful and, and change making change. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what the white ribbon product is doing is because we're, we're not, we're just unbranded. We're, we're not, we all come from different perspectives. We're, and when we talk about inclusion, we, you know, some people don't, love that use of that word because it's not inclusion like racial and ethnic it's but it's 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 stage one stage two stage three stage four it's caregivers it's family it's clinicians it's researchers it's co-workers it's you know what i mean it's it's really meant to be let's we're all in this together because anybody can get lung cancer exactly yep yeah 100 percent agree yeah yeah, so it's it's been a it, you know it's been a great journey for us to you know again to to meet people like you who who, who join us and bring your your perspective um, uh, to it and it's fun. You, I, I love I, I, it. <laughs> I wanted to ask you also about. Uh, I read that you you were a recipient of a 2020 Vanderbilt University Chancellor's Award for research on equity, diversion, and inclusion. So I can't let you go without you telling us about that. <laughs> <laughs> That was really quite an honor, and I'm 
In fact, I have the, we, we received a, uh, a silver cup that it's a mint julep cup for, so very appropriate for this. <laughs> so, so that was the award that I love and it's engraved with the name of the award and year. Um, and that was as a result of our work that we published demonstrating the, that the current screening or at the time, the screening guidelines were inequitable and really excluding um, African-Americans and really just the impact that that publication had on those USPSTF um, guideline changes. So I really um, feel honored to have received that. And that's led to a new new grant. We're still doing more work in that space. And uh, yeah, so I shared that, that award with my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Bloom. So really, I, he's a biostatistician. So it's really a great example of how collaborative work really brings a stronger product and really making an impact that can lead to health policy changes. That's so cool. And so the couple of things I heard there, yeah, certainly the collaboration, which I love. And when you mentioned uh, the, the the other co-researchers on the previous thing we talked about from North Carolina, you know, this, this, this collegial and collaborative, you know, approach. But I wanted to also, what else struck me is it, this leading to another grant, and I often talk, I, I sometimes I rant about this, honestly, Melinda, but I rant about, because <laughs> I know so many researchers now, and I know how hard it is to raise money to fund right. their labs. And it's like, yes. it's like, I think people, many people, including myself, just would make an assumption that you work at Vanderbilt, you got this big fancy pants office or lab or whatever, and then money just flows in and they just support it. But it's really not that at all, right? So if you shed a light on that for us, I'd love to hear, you know, you tell us what, you know, you're, you're thinking about that because it really is a lot of work. You spend a lot of time raising money, right? Yeah, a lot of time. Almost, uh, I'm thinking about it constantly. And then when I'm not thinking about it, I'm writing grants. So yeah, it is incredibly <laughs> challenging. Um, it, yeah, um, we're constantly thinking about grants. We typically submit to NIH, usually um, National Cancer Institute. That's one of the toughest institutes to get funding from just because so many people submit grants there. The pay lines are incredibly difficult um, and you really have to have your game together. Uh, you have to have a top-notch, very tight grant to get funded. And so having that publication where we demonstrated those changes in the screening guidelines was great preliminary data that helped support that subsequent grant. Um, but, and it's really trying to be creative and bringing together different funding sources. We have a foundation grant as well, in addition to some NIH grants. So um, a couple of actual fun, um, one foundation, and then we have an industry grant as well. So really being strategic and getting different types of grant funding sources um, is helpful. So it's, yeah, I, I worry a lot about it. It's almost like running a small business because everybody on your team is supported by the grants and they don't, they only last, you know, four or five years maximum. And so you have to resubmit and renew and so it's not that you have this unending money source <laughs> it's a constant um constant thing we work on it's it's so true in fact i'll tell you that the when i launched my 
my blog in 2014 called the Cancer Research Evangelist. It was because of my experience working at the National Foundation for Cancer Research, and I was the VP of Development, so I was raising money for individual research labs, you know, $50,000 grants, $100,000 grants that were sort of seed funding for like really, you know, outside the box sort of non-NIH fundable stuff. And I and I recognized how important that was to even, even big time researchers that um, were so grateful for a $50,000 grant or, or a $100,000 grant because it could help maybe support a postdoc. Yeah. But yeah. that was really the, the launch pad for why I'm doing what I do was because when I would see people, I would meet them and they're like at Dana-Farber, they're at Johns Hopkins. And it's like, no, no, we literally spend 75% of our time like thinking about writing grants. And I'm like, that's, that is so messed up to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not just like a shell for 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 research uh, labs, but I just feel like I John Wetstein was the one who was he's at Fox Chase now, and he's one of my good friends, and he he's one who really kind of talked to me about it because he did say just like you just said, it's like running its own business. Because like, do I I got this American Lung Association grant, but it, it's only for one year or for so two years? Like, but I have this hunch on something, but I. You know, I don't know if I can, you know, if I bring this person on, then we don't get the grant renewed. It, it's literally yeah. like staffing and all of it. It's just. It's a crazy uh, system. And then working in academics, we also have students. Well, the whole goal is to train them and have them be successful and move on in their careers. So they'll go, there goes your well-trained person. And it's just a very weird setup that we work in in academics where it's just a constantly moving target of money and trainees and expertise that there's very little that's stable, if you will. <laughs> yeah. I, I met um, Dr. Fred Alt um, about, it was probably five or six years ago, um, who's a, is an, is a very senior researcher at Howard Hughes and Children's Hospital in Boston. You may know his name, but he, I asked him like, what, what keeps you up at night? And he said, losing young people to research, to science. And it's, it's, it's always stayed with me because it's like, it's so true. It's like, if you can't, you know, you spend, you spend all these years getting your, your PhD and, you know, you, you want to do stay in research, but if you can't get work or you can't get funded and, you know, the average age of an NIH grant is like, what, like 40 years old or something. It's, and, and the chance of getting a grant is like, less than 10%. It's like, yes. this whole system is just, it's just so, so, but thankfully we do have philanthropists that, that do care about this stuff. And I'm sure that you're connected to some of those people to help support your work as well. So, yeah. So, so yeah. we definitely need people. We definitely need people um, like you to keep this going and then you'll train the next, the next generation, hopefully. Right. And then yeah. you'll be a, you'll be a mentor to the next. Yeah. Right? I am. Somebody's and it's, yeah, it's one of the things I enjoy most about what I do, actually, is seeing them finally get it and they are successful careers. And I just, um, I love it. It's one of the best things about what I do. That's so cool. There's so many people like you that I've met. I just love it. I just love that that spirit of, of mentorship and training the next generation and, and appreciating the ones who helped you along the path. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. And then you kind of pay it forward. And now you got this so awesome. Yeah. So before I let you go, I have to ask you, uh, I asked everybody this question. So is there, <laughs> tell us something about you that you're passionate about or that people might not know about you. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but um, I always like to ask that question to my guests. 
Boy, it's hard to pick just one. Um, <laughs> um, I might answer two. So I love, I'm a big foodie. I love food. I enjoy cooking, but I also love really love the outdoors. So I love going hiking. I just did a great backpacking trip for the first time in like 20 years with my sister. So that felt good. Um, I enjoy bike riding. So I love having being outdoors, um, getting that time outside away from the office and computer. And um, so, yeah. So you're foodie. Are you a good cook or are you a baker or <laughs> what is the, what's your specialty? I hope I'm a good cook. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. Um, just about anything. I'm, you know, always willing to try something new and, um, you know, doesn't need to be the standard. I, I'll try Indian food making that or Thai or any anything so um you know just made some peach ice cream so uh, all over the map but okay well there you go all right I'll take that <laughs> peach ice cream yeah Who, nobody knew that I did not know that so there you go <laughs> well listen Melinda thank you so much for being on the show it's been it's been a pleasure uh it was not only was it, it was an honor to meet you down in Nashville but um building this relationship and and hearing about your work and I'll be talking to some of your colleagues too. I think you know Eric uh, Eric Rogan uh, has some some cool stuff that's coming up uh, in the next few months. So uh, I think he's going to be on my show as well. But I really do appreciate. It. Thank you so much for the work that you do for this community, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. This was a lot of fun, and I am so happy where you went. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs>